From Dirty Spoon Media, it's the second helping, extended conversations with some of our favorite guests. I'm Katherine Campbell. Meredith Lee is a badass. Back when she and her former husband were running a farm together, Meredith, formerly vegan, started out tasked with growing the produce. But as the animal farm grew to be a larger and more unwieldy part of the business, she started stepping in with the livestock. She began teaching herself to butcher, realizing that it was the most expensive aspect of the business, but also that it was the one she found hardest to outsource, since it held the most moral quandaries. When she was contracted to write the Ethical Meat Handbook, which published in 2015, she found herself not just tackling specific butchering techniques of everything from hogs to snakes, she also dove headlong into the issues of sustainability, ethics, and the philosophy of how we eat and where our food comes from. She was recently asked to publish a second edition of the book, which gave her the chance to tweak some of the original format and make it more thematic in its presentation. And it also gave her the chance to tighten down an already dense masterpiece. We invited her onto the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour to read her new intro for the book, and we also wanted to talk to her a bit about what she does and why she does it. John has actually interviewed Meredith a lot, (laughs) but unfortunately, most of these interviews revolve around protests and the threats of violence that she's received from radical vegan protesters. And that drama can often overshadow the real breadth and scope of her work. So we wanted to set aside all the squabbles and have a much deeper conversation about what it is exactly that she does. For this podcast, we have her read the intro to the book after our chat. But first, here's John's interview with author and butcher, Meredith Lee. So uh, tell me about how this book started to begin with on the first edition. Um, Well, it started because I had been in retail business in the meat industry trying to make a whole animal butcher shop work with a small restaurant attached. And that arose out of farming and paying over half of gross profits to a slaughter facility. (laughs) Um, And realizing that that was also very difficult. You know, even when I tried to sort of vertically integrate on a small scale, people still weren't ready to walk through the door and buy the whole animal, which is sort of essential to the system working for animals being raised in integrity um, throughout the entire supply chain. And so when I got out of business, out of the butcher shop, out of the restaurant, it felt like a really opportune time for me to take my perspective as a buyer, a retailer, a farmer, a chef, someone who had worked in the nonprofit sector around food for a long time and say, Hey, how do we look at this whole system and specifically address the people with the greatest flexibility along the supply chain and try to figure out as we're rebuilding different economies of scale, what are we missing? What are we doing right? What does it look like, essentially? Yeah. Yeah. Why a second edition? What's... (laughs) Well, the second edition is mostly an attempt to re-up the conversation, I guess, in, in so many words. Meat has always been sort of at the eye of the storm, when it comes to food controversy or what, what you should eat, what you shouldn't eat, what's going on with the earth, what's not going on with the earth, and particularly right now with a lot of divisiveness in society and climate change heavy on the agenda and in dialogue, I felt the need to re-up the conversation about the role that meat could play instead of the role or the attention 
that meat gets, I guess you should say, because I still feel like there's this huge part of the story that's missing about how animals are a part of it um, and how we might not want to stop having our conversation with animals in agriculture um, just because at surface level it looks really uncomfortable and it looks really hard but if you actually dig down a little bit and sit through the discomfort there there are all these entry points for how animals fit really elegantly into agriculture and how and and even our relationship with them and the way we structure those systems has social justice implications i mean it has a lot of it has a lot of the trappings of what's going on in our culture right now and so you know quite frankly i wanted to reposition it um, within the current dialogue of what's going on with food and land. Yeah. What's, what's new in the book? What's been added? Uh, what's new in the book is a lot more updates about animal agriculture. Um, so the book, the way it was organized, reorganized too. That's another important part is that before it was organized by species. Um, so it went through beef, pork, lamb or goat and poultry, but now it's sort of organized by, um, the raising of animals for food and how that happens in the mainstream, but how it could happen in an alternative system. Um, and then it goes into butchery of all the species and then it goes into cookery. And then there's a bit, a section on charcuterie. There's a new chapter called the urban omnivore, which is all about limited resource and or, and or very urban omnivores and so you're not going to raise the animal yourself what are your access points for getting honest meat onto your plate or for um kind of displacing the status quo because that's really uh, politics aside like aside from like taking a huge stand going to washington like every single person then displacement of you know um mainstream energy or mainstream agriculture mainstream whatever food access is the way that individuals can go at it. Right. right. So that's kind of the idea. And also the publisher was willing to put all the pictures in color. And so I was like, great, let's do this because it's very hard to learn. So annoying (laughs) because if you're learning butchery, it's a, it's a supremely visual process. And Cindy Kuntz took all these amazing photographs and then they were all put in grayscale and it's, you know, it's harder. It's harder to guide yourself through it on a DIY level if you can't see the contrast of the meat and the fat and the bones and the skeletal muscle and all that stuff. So that's exciting. Awesome. No, that's great. What's the problem with the meat industry in the United States as it stands? Like, why is ethical meat the concern that it is? How do you get from being... I mean, what's the difference between what you're getting at your grocery store and what you're talking about? Oh my gosh, I could go on for days. I mean, there is not one problem. I think that's like the that's the most immediate answer. There's so many problems, like social problems, environmental problems, political problems, Um, and so that's why reading the book is really helpful because you get to unpack all of that stuff without glossing over any of it, but it's also approachable and companionable book. You know, it's not like this tome that's really difficult to get through, but I would say in a nutshell, like it's not just meat, it's all agriculture, but meat is very targeted. And so it's like, well, let's take meat and make it a snapshot of what's going on in the entire food system where we have like highly subsidized, highly consolidated 
you know, fence row to fence row cultivation that's robbing us of water and topsoil and, you know, drenching chemicals and creating essentially what is like an extremely risky business model and then dumping a bunch of taxpayer money into it so that we essentially take the risk out of inherently risky business model and then selling people super cheap overprocessed food that's making them sick and sort of duping them along the way into thinking that they're not actually paying a high price for their food you know, when in the long run, they are. They're just not paying for it at the point of sale. It was only a dollar ninety nine. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And so it's like, well, you know, how can we address these issues? Well, one way is to like take it back, you know, open the doors and all the hungry people come through. And right. so that is that has looked like um, since the onset of the environmental movement, building these alternative systems, these smaller economy of scales. And I was really interested in in watching that movement over almost 20 years now and being like, is this actually possible? Is this working? You know, it's it's like it's so easy to start a revolution, but it's really difficult to maintain one. And so right. it's like, well, what do we do to keep this alive? And what are we borrowing from convention? And what are we borrowing from racism? And what are we borrowing in all these ways that's actually like setting us back before we even start. Because essentially like what's going on with food is so affected on a systemic level by all of our cultural norms that it's, you know, it's a mess. The barriers to access. (laughs) Oh my gosh. It's ridiculous. And so I was really interested in like, all right, well, what can the everyday person do? Because honestly, if you look at the situation, the burden of responsibility rests really heavily for, for the alternative system that is the burden of responsibility is resting almost completely on the shoulders of the farmer. And a lot of farmers are like, they're not people who've been farmers their whole lives. They're people who, you know, want to subvert the status quo and they're capitalizing this alternative movement with a lot of emotion and a lot of financial resources. And, you know, the outlook is, you know, to be quite honest, not awesome, (laughs) you know? And so it's like, okay, well, let's like wake up to the fact that, okay, who are all these chefs who have celebrity status? Like, are they actually looking at this? You know, I mean, chefs have done great things and made great strides in terms of supporting the alternative movement, but what else can they do? Yeah. You know, and, and the consumer, you know, specifically the privileged consumer has done a lot to, you know, support the movement, but what else can they do? You know, because certainly those, those two groups, and I call them out, you know, sometimes you know, to people's major, privileged people's major disappointment. But, you know, those two groups have the greatest flexibility of anybody in the supply chain. And so, you know, essentially, I mean, the book's for everybody who eats, but it's essentially for the people of privilege who eat and who cook and who have a voice, you know, who are ready to to step it up a notch. Yeah. Yeah, because that's the thing that I wonder about is like a lot of it, I mean, when you talk about barriers of access to healthy, fresh foods, um, that's something I deal with a lot. And one of the things that bothers me about what I do Mm -hmm. is that I have to often refer people to cheaper alternatives that are not necessarily coming from the best sources. Yeah. So I refer a lot of people to a lot of frozen and frozen fish and meats. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's mainly because... While that may not be the best option for them, it is the one that they have access to. Well, right. I mean, it's interesting. I was at Mad Symposium last summer, and this guy, Dan Giusti, who owns Brigade in the in the New York and Connecticut and D.C. area, he's serving basically school lunches to a bunch of people. He was like executive chef at Noma 
And he quit his job. And he was like, look, everybody kind of agrees that good food is organic and sustainable and blah, blah, blah. But what if good food is just the best you can you can muster, you know, to more people. So instead of serving, you know, X thousand plates, you know, in a week's time in Copenhagen to really super uber rich people, what if I've served 10,000 plates, you know, of the frozen peas, you know, and, you know, a decent meal that might be the only meal a kid gets in its entire, in his entire day, you know, in, in DC or, or, you know, Connecticut or whatever, New York, then that's good food. Right. And so, and so I think the conversation is happening on a lot of different levels and certainly meat is like one of the most honest meat, meat with integrity, meat that's actually good for you is like one of the most exclusive things in our food system right now. And so, yeah, yeah, that's, that's a problem. The most privileged thing. (laughs) It's the most privileged thing. And I, and I don't, I, I say I'm not successful in the book at answering the question of what does good food do about this access issue, you know, but I, I am certainly committed to digging into that issue. And I, and I often use the book as a platform for a recognition of that, of that topic that this is a problem that good food has had forever and saying that the ideals of good food are going to trickle down to those that are less fortunate as long as we all keep buying our farm to table dinners and our you know farmers market foods is just as asinine as trickle down economics yeah. you know <laughs> so what are we actually going to do about it well and yeah. most of the farmers that i talk to that grow the most sustainable foods both meat and and anything else are not really going to the farmer's market as much anymore these days. They're going straight to restaurants because that's where they make their bread and butter. Right. You mean with their food, like that's their mm-hmm. sales outlet. Right. Uh-huh. Yeah. And so that's even more of a niche access to it. Right. But that's the only way that a lot of these farmers can find it sustainable to grow in means that they see ethical. Yeah, I can see that. One of the things I often tell people, and I often question myself on whether I am accurate or right in this, is that if you can't eat, if you don't have access to the ethical meats, the good meats, just eat less. Mm -hmm. But that's a real hard thing for people to do. Yeah. Um, Is there another alternative? Well, I mean, I guess the other alternative would be if we don't actually want to capitalize a better meat system, you know, if we don't as consumers want to get together and be like, oh, hey, I don't have a whole lot of capital, but if me and Jonathan together want to go to a farmer and be like, hey, it'd be great if you could stop using GMO feed and we're going to actually capitalize you doing that. We're going to buy the animals from you up front. We're going to own them. We're going to make it so you can build an extra fence and buy an extra waterer. And when you get done raising that pig for a more expensive price than you would raise it for otherwise, you have a guaranteed buyer. Like, we're right here, you know? But if we're not willing to do that, then probably the answer is that people with more privilege should eat less meat. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Um, like sometimes I think, you know, because if you look at actually like global statistics of people who are the least advantaged overall or the least safe, they live in some places where you, you literally can't have agriculture without livestock. Yeah. And so, you know, it's like, if you have the privilege of cherry picking your diet, (laughs) unless you're going to truly capitalize ethical meat systems, then you definitely need to be eating less meat. Yeah. What does that do? I've always often wondered... And I'm curious your thought on this, what you think that will do across the board. Because when I look at, like, 
you know, the market is going to change based on demand mm-hmm. and supply. And the more, de- and we've already seen the more demand for plant-based meats. I mean, Tyson Foods yep. is the one running, is it Beyond Meat that they're running? I have no idea. Or it's, uh, it's one of those, those brands. Mm-hmm. And it's all this, this, you know, vegan product, yep. but it is manufactured by Tyson. Yep. They're realizing that this is a movement that they need to invest, that that's a movement they sure, need to invest yeah. in. And they're also trying to grow the cage-free eggs, the things like that. And they're manipulating the terms to change it. They're manipulating the terms, but not the market necessarily. My concern is if people start just eating less meat, does that mean that the industry collapses instead of changes? Uh. Well, that's a really good question. I mean, I guess you also have to answer the same question, like how can the industry change? Because if it still remains all about market share, then, <laughs> you know, right. can it can it actually move in the way that it needs to move? Um, I mean, one of my most pressing questions right now is like, can we take slaughter and take it to a place of mindfulness and take it to a place of, an, an you know, a relationship with animals that has, and, and people and workers that has integrity on the scale that we need to. Yeah. yeah. I really want to look at that. You know what I mean? Is there the capacity within like a neoliberal economic system that's like completely driven by the market to do that? And if the answer is no, then maybe ethical meat doesn't work. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I was just talking to a chef in Boston who has a small magazine and he was saying that he wants me to write for this issue that they're doing far out in the future. And the theme of it is we're not actually sure if this works, but let's give it a try. And that's like one of my favorite topics. I'm like, great, right. I'll totally contribute because that's the way we figure it out. You know, me having a butcher shop and it not working out has been instrumental to like where I'm at now. That's you know? literally how science works. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's just that humans are dumb and they get like locked into this, you know, treadmill of where like just because we're doing this, it must be the right path, you know. But I yeah. think that like true activism is where you get to the point where you're like, okay, I'm willing to be wrong. Because if I'm not willing to be wrong, we don't move. Yeah. You know? And so I think that, you know, your question is a brilliant one. It's like, you know, what do we do? If we if we are only willing to eat the meat that's truly honest, then what happens to industry? If we pull subsidies from commodity crops, what actually happens to SNAP? What actually happens to you know, the food system as we know it, both for the uber rich and both for like the super disadvantaged, you know? Yeah. So ideas are ideas, but they have, I mean, we are, we've propped up a massive system on a bunch of tiny little toothpicks, you know what I mean? And totally. Yeah, we totally get to play with all the little toothpicks, but we, <laughs> what's the consequence, you know? Yeah. I don't know the answer to that. <laughs> yeah. I was talking to somebody the other day, uh, she's a food writer out in LA, and she was talking about, she'd taken a trip, she and her husband had gone out to Italy and they were shocked that she was vegetarian. Yeah. And she started explaining, like, the conditions of meat in mm-hmm. the U.S. And she was like, well, of course I don't. Like, the system's so corrupt. And they're like, who would mistreat their animals this way? And they were just yeah. kind of surprised yeah. and just it's totally cultural. floored by the way that, this, that that works. And Italy doesn't have to redo its meat system because it is all based on local abattoirs mm-hmm. and local butchers and local farmers that sell to their local butcher. But it's a lot more expensive there yeah. to eat. Yeah. And 
it's already expensive to eat here. Yeah. And it's already hard to get access to food here. And in some cases, harder than it is in most of Europe. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Do you think the problem is the system? Yes, absolutely. Or do you I th- think the problem is the means? Um, well, I think that there's problems in both areas. And I'm in the place now where like, I've been doing a lot of work in the means area for many years. And now I'm in the part of my work where I'm like, okay, girl, time to go, like time to go system. Because I think that, you know, it's all good and well to keep, keep trying to build an infrastructure like they have in Italy here, you know, in communities, because it's possible to support an agriculture that feeds people and communities on any soil anywhere. Right. You know, we know that now. And even if like normal science tries to argue with that, we have like experience of farmers the world over where they're going, yes, this is working, right? Yeah. And so, yeah, there's problems with science. There's problems with religion. There's problems with attitude. There's problems with anything. But I think one of the biggest issues we face in growing the movement is the fact that like people don't give a shit about food because they can't. They're not safe enough to, right? And so if we don't deal with chronic poverty, then having like an awesome food system doesn't solve our problems. So we got to deal with housing. We got to deal with racism. We got to deal with extractive markets. We got to deal with, you yeah. know, exploitive labor. This, that so, always strikes me as the problem with like the whole food <laughs> solution. Yeah. Or even I heard about like Aldi going all organic mm-hmm. or mostly organic. And I was like, well, that's cool. But what, what are your customers going to do? Like the reason they're coming here is because it's cheap. Yeah, and I mean, I, it'll be interesting to see what direction. happens, right? Yeah. To the other thing they've done is completely gotten rid of plastic packaging, which is like, yeah, what needs to happen? You know, what is it doing to the prizes? I have no idea. Yeah, you know, yeah. but yeah, I think that's the scariest part to me is like, how do you reform a system without completely isolating the most vulnerable that are already the ones suffering from the worst effects? Mm-hmm. But. Who knows? Well, I just think it takes a lot of vision and a lot of sacrifice. Yeah. You know? And I think that, you know, the people who are, who can afford to take the sacrifices need to be taking them, you know? And I certainly, I mean, we were having this discussion before we got on the air about like, it's time to get political. You know, it's time to take a stand, in, in my opinion. And so, you know, I'm ready. I'm ready to yeah. face it. Uh, to me, it's almost not even a matter of politics, it's a matter of policy. Well, and I think that those are very good point. I think that that it's hard to because like at this point it's almost easy to polarize things. But, but how do you how you do can, you alter you policy? Can, I think you alter policy by showing that the places where it's mutually beneficial for everyone in the game. Mm, yeah, and that's about small steps. Yeah, that's about small. That's, that's just about everyday conversations, yeah. and to me, that's been the most effective and. And yep. getting people to pay attention to those things. But at the same time, that takes so much more time. So much more time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what can people do to personally give themselves a better relationship with ethical meat? Mm. Well, I think first and foremost, work together. That's been one of the most powerful realizations that I've had about this work is that it is actually bringing lots of people together who wouldn't normally come together because they have the common interest of getting good meat for their families. And so they work together on cooking. They work together on buying, sourcing, 
processing, preserving. Right. Um, and so a lot of the work I've been doing on the road is going out into just any community that wants me to come and filling a room with people who want to learn how to butcher, who want to learn how to make charcuterie. And it's astounding the things that happen. It's like I leave the community and then there's a pod of people who are like, oh, let's get together and harvest an animal. Let's get together and buy an animal. Let's get together and support a farmer. Yeah. You know, have a cookout, teach each other how to pickle something. And so it's like... Have a pig picking. Yeah, totally. And so that kind of stuff, it feels like citizen power to just like just subvert and displace what what you're used to, even if you feel like extremely limited resource, you yeah. know? Um, and so I think working together is a big thing. And then I think, you know, there's just so many people out there, Jonathan, who can do so much more. You know, they have the means right? and they just don't know. And so I, I'm all about like talking to those people because I feel like at this point, like I'm totally fine with vegans. Go for it, man. This is a screwed up system, you know? Yeah. But I do think that like the people who eat meat stand to make more change than the people who don't at this point. So I'm talking to the people who eat meat, who have the ability to make a change and are ready to do it. And so, like, here's a hundred options for you yeah. right now, you know? Yeah, when you were talking about the, the come together and work together kind of thing, I, it made me remember, like, growing up in the mountains of Appalachia, like, you always had your neighbors come over and be like, hey, I shot a deer this week. You yep. want some of it? And, totally. like, they'd just bring you, like, a whole side of a deer that, that you just stuck in the freezer and your family ate off of it yeah. for months. and. I think like that was an ethic that I grew up with that just seems kind of natural to me, mm-hmm. but that's, that's gotta be something that has to be taught now. Cause it's, most people won't think like, Hey, you know, we could all go in together and get a whole hog and well, then just break taught. the thing down. It's being taught, but you have, you know, the other thing is like to just be patient, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you know, cause it's taking a long time. I mean, I remember I had an old, an old timer come up to me after a talk at it and he was like, I remember when I was a kid uh, every, you know, every three months we would kill a cow in our community yeah. and everybody would, you, we had this list of everybody and everybody come together and help with the harvest and help with the butchery. And then every family would get like a share yeah. and you kept track of which, which family got which share. And then you would rotate so that everybody got a little bit of everything. But by the time the year was over and he was like, it worked beautifully, you know, it was wonderful, but people aren't going to do that. You know, yeah. people aren't going to do that anymore. You know, and it's kind of like, well, it's interesting because I'm seeing people do that, you know, mm-hmm. and it's very, it's very easy to become like dissociated or discouraged when you are just like stuck in the loop of where you are, you know, no matter how active you are or no matter how conscious you are and you're looking around, you're going like, oh my God, everything's just going to shit, you know, or yeah. I'm in a bubble. But like one thing that traveling around has taught me is that there's bubbles everywhere, you know, and they're well, all... Everywhere is a bubble. Everywhere is a bubble and bubbles make suds, right? <laughs> so... Just like keep keep going, I think is is important, you know. Yeah. And don't don't do the like paralysis of analysis thing because I'm cer- I've certainly been guilty of that, you know. But if it's like picking out one thing about the SNAP program that you're gonna fight for, and going up to DC and being like, hey, I'm a restaurant owner and my, you know, my employees are on SNAP or you know my constituents value you know X Y Z about you know, prescription produce, whatever it is, then go and do that thing. You know what I mean? And don't be worried about whether like snap overall is like a sound program that works, you know? Right. So (laughs) baby steps. 
Yeah, use this. Keep going. Use the infrastructure that is there, Mm -hmm. but figure out how to make it suit your needs. Right. Yeah. 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 No, that's that's really good. That's that's really good. Um. Anything we haven't talked about that you'd like to get on mic? I mean, there's just so much. I don't like. There's nothing specific that I'm like. Oh, let's talk about this. You know. Yeah. Yeah. I, cool. I like that we've touched on some things that like people don't normally ask about. That feels good, good. to me. Okay. So I guess where can people find your book? Um, the best way and the most powerful way for you to get my book is directly from me and <laughs> not from Amazon. Yeah. Um, and so you can go to ethicalmeatbook.com um, or puresharcuterie.com and you can get them directly from me. Awesome. But if you can't afford to do that, by all means, get them from Amazon. Super yeah. cheap because it's more important that you read them than yeah. not. Awesome. Cool. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for coming on board. Thanks for having me. Definitely. As I put the finishing touches on the second edition of this book, the sun is coming up and the quality of its first light is pulling my eyes eastward over the ocean, away from the computer screen as if by some great magnet. I go outside and put my bare feet on the ground and let it wake me. As this is happening, leaves the earth over are opening and the instantaneous increase in temperature, which does not seem appreciable to my partner, who is fishing in the surf and shivering, is enough to wake up more microorganisms than there are grains of sand in the entire world. And they begin to breathe and eat and release and die in a dizzying infinite orgy of heat and sugar and acid and gas, thereby, among other things, producing the smell I associate with a spring morning. I marvel. For this ritual sun-gazing feels novel to me, yet is as ancient a human practice as our oldest civilizations, and predates even human animals, in a contract between the sun and non-human existence that traces to a blindingly improbable moment, when the chemical trappings of our planet crashed with the sun's energy to produce what we now often take for granted, life. The sun's light has not yet reached Redwood City, California, where the company Impossible Burger is headquartered. I have recently read about their process to produce the bleeding plant-based burger that is all over menus and the media, made from soy and potato and a liquid ferment of genetically modified yeast. I have not seen their production facilities or the vats of liquid hemoprotein within them, but I can imagine its color. Just days ago, I uprooted my garden cover crop of oats and Austrian winter peas and raked through soil the color of dark chocolate to look at the tiny nodules on the roots of the pea plants where rhizobia live. Rhizobia is a type of bacteria that can take nitrogen from the air and convert it to usable form for plants. Nitrogen fixation, as we call it, occurs in these nodules, and if I dust the soil from them in my hands and gently pierce the nodule with my fingernail, I can see a blood red or pink color to assure me that the relationship between these peas and their rhizobia herds has been successful. This color is produced by leg hemoglobin, which is the same protein that Impossible Foods uses to make plant-based meat bleed and taste meaty. The process of nitrogen fixation in the nodules of legume plants, such as my garden's pea cover crop, depends on the health of various biological pathways and involves the enzyme nitrogenase, which contains iron, cobalt, and or molybdenum, mineral components of soils in right balance. Recently, 
I have been studying the epigenetic regulation of mineral deficiency in plants as well as in humans, which is to say the systemic response to environmental conditions that is remembered by plant and animal DNA. Did my garden soil contain enough cobalt or molybdenum to enable nitrogenase catalysts for rhizobia to do its work? Had it not, the nodules on the roots of the pea cover crop may have been merely white or a pale banana color, but the plants would grow all the same, and I might pick their shoots for a salad and go about my day. But what signals would the lack of traced metals send to the pea plant as it grew and produce seed for next year, and even to my body, or the bodies of my offspring, as I ate a salad from my garden? Impossible Burger uses genetic technology to isolate leg hemoglobin from soybean root nodule bacteria and then encodes it into yeast, which, when fermented, multiply and produce more leg hemoglobin, which churns in stainless steel vats, ready to be added to the company product. I pull the roots and the shoots of my oat and pea cover crop aside and make tracks in the deep coffee-colored soil for my onions, cabbage, sculpit, kale, and leek crops. A proponent of low-till agriculture, what I am doing slightly disturbs me, just as it disturbs the hyphae of many beneficial soil fungi, such as mycorrhizae, which I have spent a year or more ensuring a home in my garden. The barefoot farmer Jeff Poppin swears by a minimal, shallow disturbance of soil at seasonal transitions to kill the microbial communities associated with one seasonal crop and an awakening and fermentation of the new generation of soil life. On the basis of this belief, he grows eight acres plus of organic vegetables without irrigation every single year. I solace myself with this thought, and I watch a dazzling exodus of earthworms as it makes its way towards darkness after I've disturbed the peace. The smell, the activity, the solar energy, fermentation, life and death that I could literally feel emanating from my garden at that moment, and on top of it, the crashing of the ocean waves and the jiggling living sea foam on the beach today gives me muse for a thousand years of impossible burgers. I want food with the sun in it. I want living food. There will be a thousand and one attempts to secure food in our day and age. These include test tubes, pills, and super crops, and we very likely won't be able to stop the scientific approaches which take nature out of context, so to speak. I don't deny Impossible Burger its place, and indeed won't deny its intention in a colossal and very flawed system. But I am a lifelong pilgrim for food which feeds us more than substance, and food that remains our way of participating in an energetic discourse and a reciprocity with the earth. By this I mean food from the soil, well-raised, full of solar and magnetic and mineral richness, synergy which isn't being piped to a seedling or encoded in a virus. There are resonating questions which have heckled me, appropriately, during the revision of this book. They remain. Is it relevant? Is it possible? Are we running out of time? In middle spring, around Mother's Day, the grass on a North Carolina pasture rises out of incessant rain, suddenly, to waist high. As you walk through it, you can't help but hold your arms out like wings, letting the seed heads, gravid with risk, brush on the new calluses of your palms. The sheep will be covered over with it, and their lambs down in the depths of the grass will bleat a high, worried song, just so their mothers will answer. 
The cows with their awkward horns will be up to their chins in food. On the edges of the pasture, giant tractors will mow paths beside the road, and cars will swerve off the pavement to make room for broom, poison ivy, privet, multifloral rose, and a litany of other plants eager to make use of disturbed ground. The sheep will peer over the fence I've made to sniff at them, nibbling carefully. The lambs will call. The cows will upend their slow tails to swat at flies in the sun. This grass, this food, with its constituents cellulose, hemocellulose, and lignin, is the most abundant food source in the world. Together with trees, grasses spread over more of the Earth's surface than any other food source. If you stand or sit in the tall grass in North Carolina in May, while the wind blows it like water, and the muted purples and grays and greens of the seeds shimmer in the sun, you will wish you could eat this food and receive of its warmth and its wholesome smell. But you can't. And you will wonder, what if we poison all the honeybees? You might have just passed over a stand of milkweed and scoured it over to find no monarch caterpillars. So what if we mine all the topsoil, collapsing it into rivers and wind? What if we drain all the aquifers? What if we starve out the cobalt and rhizobia in their little root houses? What will grow then? What will eat the sun's gifts? What will root in and send messages to the worms and the protists? Grass, broom, poison ivy, kudzu, sedge, privet, autumn olive, cellulose, hemocellulose, and lignin. And the hooves and the spit and the dung and the piss of the animals who eat that food will be the only thing that can bring us back any lively conversation, any discourse with the elements, with the beetles, with us. As agriculture remains highly politicized, corporatist, and extractive, we need the herbivores. We need a stewardship of the land that includes animals, and we need the nutrients that they can translate from the sun and the soil and the rain. And if we can put men on the moon, we can manage our relationship with animals mindfully on any scale. I choose food with the sun in it. I choose living food. And so, the intention for this book is the same as it ever was, to heal. When I wrote it, I was healing myself from a massive fissure in life and an endeavor. And I was simultaneously bringing about a relatively short, however storied amount of perspective on healing land and systems for food. I am astonished at how much I have learned and how much my positions and understandings have become more complex since the first release of this work. So much has changed, but the seed and the medium have not. We still need, we will need, volumes of thought and practice about the noble contract between people and food that don't abandon all hope for a positive human relationship with sunlight and rain and soil. This book is based on the belief that on a warming planet, Divided by injustice and doubt and starvation on many levels, every eater has a way to conjure hope and empowerment, not tomorrow, but now. In this update, I hope you will find some of the same information honed, and also new information and thought that speaks to some of the real idiosyncrasies of being an omnivore in health in our current times. You will also find deeply considered problems, as ever. My intention has never been to present the equation solved. I hope you will see, also, what a fantastic dilemma this sort of book is, as it tries to approach the world as it is while fashioning it forward, toward the future. My hope is that the conversation continues, 
and that you take away from this work not only meaning and cause to participate in a very worthy exploration of your humanity, but also enjoyment. Community, vitality, deliciousness. If we cannot keep sight of those enlivening characteristics, even as we air all of the difficult questions, then we deny ourselves the very thing that will give us longevity. Recognition of ourselves as natural beings, as animals, connected participants in a wild yet elegant universe. May we recognize that the privilege is greater than or equal to the challenge ahead. That was John talking with Meredith Lee and Meredith reading from her book, The Ethical Meat Handbook. You can find The Ethical Meat Handbook on her website and wherever fine books are sold. After their conversation, Meredith emailed John because she was uncomfortable with how she answered a question. She writes, and I quote, You specifically asked what would happen to the industry if people of privilege chose to stop eating meat. It's a great question, and I basically said I don't know, and it's complex, but I think there is more than that. Maybe for another time. I guess what I'd add is that I want to think of ways for people to choose in such a way that gives farmers more power and agency, and see how the industry responds to that instead of it sort of always being this conversation between consumers and industry or industry and politics. So far, we, quote, give farmers power by supporting them directly. But we had already discussed the flaws in that framework. I'd like to promote it other ways. The other better answer is that making more informed buying choices is totally a way to move markets, but it has to be big enough to move McDonald's and Tyson, so to speak. The best example close at hand is when McDonald's decided to buy cage-free eggs. True, that doesn't mean much from a welfare and environmental standpoint, but 10,000 dozen eggs a week changed means a lot for producers. So perhaps if the message about what we've done to the genetics of chicken got as much media attention as the horrors of mainstream meat production for health and planet, Tyson would back a label rouge production facility in addition to Beyond Meat. We have to do both, is what I'm saying, I guess. Privileged people have to use dollars to displace the status quo and dollars to demand more from it. End quote. The Dirty Spoon is brought to you by The Marketplace Restaurant, celebrating 40 years of farm-to-table food. The Marketplace always brings you the best food grown by your neighbors. And The Second Helping is a production of Dirty Spoon Media, copyright 2019. I'm Katherine Campbell, and I'm the editor-at-large. I source our stories and handle our marketing, development, and website. Jonathan Ammons is our editor-in-chief, and he records and produces the show and the interstitial music. Be sure to head to our website, www.dirty-spoon.com, to stream full episodes of the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour, read stories from the show, and to definitely see the incredible artwork from our contributing artists. And don't miss new episodes of the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour on 103.7 WPVM on the first Friday of every month. We're always bringing you stories from the people who shape what we consume on the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour. Thank you.